Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. When it comes to longevity and aging well, we now know that a key component of both is the health of our cells. Each one of us has over 37 trillion cells in our body, and we rely on these building blocks to effectively carry out their functions and to keep renewing themselves as we age. One of the issues we face as we are aging is that our cells fail to replicate correctly, which can cause disease. This is also why aging is the issue at the core of many of the big diseases we see with old age. My guest today is Dr. Sandra Kaufman, and we will do a deep dive into all things anti-aging. Sandra is a cell biologist and the chief of pediatric anesthesia at the Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital in Florida. She's also the founder of the Kaufman Anti-Aging Institute, which focuses on educating about the reasons why we age and how we can minimize the effects of aging. Sandra is the author of the book, The Kaufman Protocol, Why We Age and How to Stop It. Today, she will share with us why a personalized longevity protocol is so important in addition to sleep, diet, and exercise. Ariana Summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Sandra, thank you so much for being with us today. I know you have a very busy schedule. I am super grateful that you made time for us. Welcome to the Superhumanized podcast. Thank you. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Let's cut right to the chase, Sandra. Can we stop aging? A very non-definitive answer. We can seriously decelerate the process at the moment. I don't think we are to the point of absolutely stopping it yet. And just actually within the last six days or so, I read in one of my news alerts that uh, new research recent, recently showed that humans can live up to more than a century and possibly way longer. They're talking about up to 150 years. This was a study that was published in the journal Royal Society Open Science. And so we're, we're talking about really drastically expanded lifespans within our lives that we'll be able to witness. What is your take on that? What do you think, what kind of a lifespan are we talking about What from your research and your work? What is possible? I, I think it depends on how you define how long we're going to be able to live. I think that what's going to happen is that the average is going to get bumped up to about 110 I personally, I'm aiming for 120, but that means that the true longevity probably will max out to about 140, 145. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's lots of variables, and I think it depends on when you start and how avidly you pursue this sort of thing. And what I find fascinating about this is I think a lot of people don't yet realize the vast implications of this, of course, for oneself individually to live drastically longer than our parents is one thing, but then also the effects it'll have on societies, on economies, on the life contracts that we have, whether, you know, it's marriage, how do we define family, how many chapters do we actually have in our life, work and such. What do you think are the most interesting effects we will see once this becomes a reality for most people? I think the good news is it's not going to be dramatic quickly. For example, mm -hmm. I, I think that as people get used to this idea, it's going to creep up, right? Like when I was a kid and if someone was 100 years old, it, it made national news, right? Now, it, it doesn't anymore. There's a ton of folk out there that are living that old, if not longer, and it's 
becoming a little bit normal and people are like, okay, well, I'm not going to re retire at 60, maybe 65. And when people put money away for their retirement, they need to realize that they're not going to die at 80 anymore. That's young. When people die at 80, but like, oh my goodness, that, that was really young. We're doing, you know, elective surgeries on 90 year olds. So I think that gradually the understanding is going to just sink in without people really realizing it. But I think the biggest problem is going to be money, to be honest with you. If people think they're going to retire at 65 and then live to 120, they're not going to have the cash to be able to do that. So it's going to take some planning ahead if you're one of us that are very involved in this kind of thing. Right. And I think it's really about time that also politicians and policymakers take a serious look at this because we've had have some advances, whether it's medically, whether it's things like nutrition, whether it's technology, this will be at our front doorstep quicker than we thought possible when, you know, science fiction turning into science fact. Now, nobody would argue that we should stop, let's say, giving medications to diabetes patients, cancer patients, and such. But the idea of reversing or stopping or really decelerating aging still can be controversial for some. In your mind, why should we decelerate aging? Well, it's twofold, right? We talk about lifespan and we talk about health span. Hmm. So from a, a simply practical point of view, if you can decelerate age-related disease, regardless of how long you end up living, your lifespan is better, right? There's a difference between a 90-year-old in a wheelchair traked in a nursing home versus a 90-year-old that's off having life adventures. Mm -hmm. well, that, that's significant. And it's the number's the same, but the activity level clearly isn't. And those are things that we need to get used to. If you can, instead of getting cancer at 60 and get cancer at 80, that's huge. If you can, even if you're you know, diabetic, if you can offset all the, the other things that come along with diabetes, kidney failure, neurologic disease, et cetera. If you could just delay it for another decade or two, that is truly significant. And so I tend to be very proactive in avoiding disease. Western medicine is traditionally, you get a disease and we treat it, right? Mm -hmm. But knowing what we know about cells and disease, like it's no shocker that it's coming. And we know how it's coming. So why don't we avoid it before it gets here? And that is my push. And that's a new way of thinking about it, at least in the real medical community. Yes. And I love that. The prevention of the problem in the first place, instead of just getting to the problem and then just treating it, I think a lot of people, when they think about aging and reaching a old age, unfortunately, they have stuck in their minds this, okay, this is going to be 10 or 20 years of misery towards the end of my life. I'm just going to be sick. But these things are changing. I really think it's time that as a society, we start to rethink aging because health span and lifespan, that's something that will go together. Now, Sandra, as far as yourself are concerned, you started your career as a cell biologist, a plant physiologist, what made you end up in the field? You're in the field of anesthesia. <laughs> so I'm a science geek. I've always been a science geek and went to college. And I, the, the, you always get pulled to what people are very enthusiastic about. And the plant physiology department was just super cool with neat people doing really amazing things. And so I thought, aha, this is it. I get to go play in jungles and do really cool things with my life. And, and I started doing that and I was really amazed. I, I, I was looking at chlorophyll and, and plasticity of plant species and, and it was really cool. But as my father pointed out, plants don't really pay bills and I have a long life to pay for. So it was one of those come to Jesus Christmases when my dad's if you go to med school, I'll pay for it. And I thought, yeah, it's not really a bad idea. So I, I, I went to med school. I found it all very, uh, so engrossing and really interesting. And I like to think I have a liberal arts background in medicine, which sounds ridiculous, except that I ended up doing a year of general surgery. I did a year of neurosurgery, I turned it to anesthesia, and now I'm a pediatric anesthesiologist. 
So I tend to know a bit about most parts of the body, but then I also have it from a cellular perspective. So when you tie all of these things together, you have a very good idea of what goes wrong in the body, why it goes wrong, and then what things you can do to treat it. So for example, like a drug going into the body, what the body does to the drug, you talk about pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics and, and all of these wonderful things, which means you, you learn that you can start manipulating cells. Mm. And that is just a really cool idea. Absolutely. And uh, you just mentioned it with your work, pediatric work. It seems somehow ironic that a children's doctor should become an expert in aging. Was there something that you can recall that just triggered that interest and that yearning for more information about aging? So my other goofy thing that I do is I'm a rock climber. Yeah. You know, I, <laughs> so funny. Most of the women I know, oh, they do Pilates and yoga. And I think that's delightful. But I, I'm an adrenaline junkie. So I hang off of cliffs. I do a lot of mountain climbing. And I was dangling off a cliff one day, I don't know, it must've been 44, 45. And all these folks are there and they're in their twenties. And I thought, oh my gosh, unless I figure this out, I'm screwed. When you're facing down 50, you think my life is over as an athlete. I have got to do something about this. And we all come with various skill sets. Some women are six foot two and have huge boobs and other people are whatever. I, I got this ridiculously obnoxious brain and- <sighs> I'm just really curious and I love reading science. So when I got off the cliff, I, I came home and I'm like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to figure this out. And your family thinks you're like ridiculously stupid. Come on. Uh, like me of all people, I'm going to figure out why we age, but I tell you, it all seemed to fall into place and make a ton of sense. And clearly I'm not a bench researcher, but reading a zillion articles, I realized that your cells age and very particular reasons and you can cluster them together into what I call the seven tenants. And then if you approach each one of those things individually, you can seriously decelerate the aging process. And since I did this for me, I am the world's biggest guinea pig. I have done more shit to myself, pardon my language, um, but it's, it's all in the hope that, okay, I, I think I can make a real difference. And if I don't, how could I possibly recommend something to someone else if I haven't done it first? I love that. I'm with you there 100%. Of course, in my case, it's more, uh, much more basic level. You being a through and through scientist, I can only begin to imagine. So once this piqued your interest, and like you said, you essentially became a human guinea pig, what did you do first? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds promising. Well, no. <laughs> so first you sit there. So as an anesthesiologist, you're on call a lot. And I'm actually the chief of a department. And now I'm a chief of a region. But you sit in your office a lot. And you're staring at this monster computer. And I have access to every article you know, ever written by anyone anywhere, which is amazing. My office turned into, it looked like a sticky pile had exploded. So everywhere, clusters of aging theories, this, that, the other. And then I'm like, oh my God, there are seven tenets of aging. Mm -hmm. And every time you read an article, it would say, Agent X as the the key aspect of such and such, and and after that gets listed seventeen times, well, there's something to that. So all of these things started falling into place, and I started making protocols. And instead of taking one protocol, I tried every protocol all at the same time. People thought I was nuts, but I tell you, I've never felt better. And then the more you do and the more positive feedback you get, like the more crazy things that you do. For example, I'm obsessed. There's a molecule called SKQ1. It's also called Visomitin. You can get it over the counter in Russia as eye drops. And I do, I import these eye drops and they're fantastic and they make your vision significantly better. But I was reading all of these articles about how if you take it orally, or at least when you give it orally to lab animals, they do significantly better. How, now, in which way do they do better? We can't get it here because it's, it, it goes to your mitochondria and it's an extremely potent free radical scavenger. It's mm -hmm. amazing, it's this fantastic molecule, but you can't get it here because it's not FDA approved for anything. And, and it's going through, I think it's in phase two trials right now. Yeah. As a lunatic, 
I ordered it from a chemical company and told them I was a researcher and there's a, it was labeled not for human consumption, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, well, that's ridiculous. I converted the nanomoles per kilogram that you would give to a mouse to some reasonable human dose, checked it a few times to make sure I wasn't going to kill myself and I started drinking it. All right, hang on. And so what is the, for purely curiosity, for what is the acceptable human dose? I must know. Yeah, I don't actually. <laughs> <laughs> I did this three weeks ago and yeah. I had to double dilute it in some saline. So I forget what the concentration is. I, I'm drinking two and a half cc's of pretty gnarly saline crap every day. I wish I could remember what, what it is. It's, it's a ridiculous thing where you have to go from nanomoles to moles to grams. Yeah. And then there's a conversion from mouse to humans. I want to say it's you multiply by three, divide by 37. So, so, someone's going to say, oh my God, her numbers are way off. It's, it's something of that nature. I, there's this huge long sheet in my office where I checked it, double checked it, and had somebody else check it. And they're like, why are you doing this? I'm like, you don't really want to know. It hasn't killed me. So I think we're good. Yeah. So did you notice any effects, immediate or cumulative? No, I'm on 52 agents as it is. Yeah. I was just hoping not to die and I'm, I'm good. So it's working. Great. And so SKQ1, I'll look into that at the very least the as eye drops. This sounds really fascinating. I have quite a few friends who are bothered by macular degeneration, vision loss, and uh, may be helpful, especially for people who have been used all their lives and their jobs. I'm talking about former military to have really accurate vision. And that sounds fascinating. So SKQ1 is one thing. What else is part of your protocol that's out there that the regular basic biohacker wouldn't even know about? What is, so it depends how, you know, when you define basic biohacker, I don't know what people know and what they don't know. Okay. With any luck, people know that your cells age in very specific categories. People are generally very familiar with their mitochondria, which is my world is tenant too. If I do this out of order, I will so screw it up. So let me run the list and you can tell me what people know and what they don't know. Yes, please. And I will not speak for other people. I will just assume that everything you will mention will find a listener in the audience who's not already familiar with it. And I love to go through this. And in your book, The Kaufman Protocol, Why We Age and How to Stop It, you write about these seven tenets and let's go for it. I want to hear all about it. Okay. So tenet one is all the DNA alterations that occur. And this is essentially telomere shortening. Mm-hmm. Most people know about telomeres. Everyone gets their telomeres measured. People need to know that every cell is not the same. It's a very non-homogenous population. So one cell might be different than another. So it's take that measurement with a grain of salt. But there are things that can stabilize your telomere loss. And there are some things theoretically that can increase it, maybe. Uh, Bill Andrews, of course, is the king of telomeres. And so I always defer to him and he defers to me and other things. So that is his world. DNA is also, let's see, epigenetic modifications. That is huge. And there's a whole lot of plant-based stuff that helps with epigenetics. Yes. We all know about the resveratrol and the ECGC, one of my ferrets, uh, sulfurophane. There's a whole class of those. You can even be on a full epigenetic diet. So that's cool. And then the last thing in the DNA category, which I find absolutely fascinating and is reasonably new to me, is what I call DNA protection. So what's interesting, there's a molecule called spermidine. Spermidine is a long uh, molecule and is positively charged, and it likes to cozy up to DNA. DNA has a major groove and a minor groove, and they're negatively charged. So spermidine nestles into those grooves and it protects it. And I like to think of it as bubble wrapping your DNA. And at least in test tubes, it protects it from free radicals and UV radiation and that sort of thing. And I love to think that it protects your uh, DNA in your cells as well. I don't have evidence of that as yet, but there's no reason that it would not. So I like to think that we should all bubble wrap our DNA. I like that idea. The other thing that's cool is magnesium helps the structure of DNA. Uh-huh. Certain areas, depending on the nucleotide distribution, end up in these cool squares. Uh, and those squares are stabilized by magnesium. Mm-hmm. Um, like, your DNA 
falls apart and it's more prone to damage and then you're screwed. So I think that magnesium and spermidine are essential in the how to protect your DNA category. Excellent. And with regards to magnesium, uh, a lot of people are deficient. So it's something that I think everybody should look, look into anyhow. And there's a few different types of magnesium. Do you recommend a specific one? So I absolutely, I'm obsessed with magnesium threonate. I love that stuff. Yes. Right? right? Tell us more about it. Oh, I want to hear it in, in your words. Yeah, what I, so I think about, so yes, everyone, not everyone, most people are deficient in magnesium and it does a zillion things. And there's an entire chapter on magnesium in the book that I'm going to be coming out with very soon. But magnesium threonate is the only variety that gets uh, through the blood-brain barrier into the CNS. And once it is there, it does some really cool things. It lowers neural inflammation, which is good, and it increases uh, the plasticity of the hippocampal neurons. So theoretically, it can make you smarter. Ah, I did not know about that last part. I love that. Who knows? I like to think that since I started all of this, I think that my multitasking skills have significantly increased. Hmm. I also I checked it, but it seems so. Interesting. I personally find it very calming. And at the same time, it helps me focus. So it's a, a great thing. I love to start my day with it. It doesn't make me tired. But that's super interesting with regards to the hippocampus. I will have to Ah, gosh, that's fascinating stuff. Yeah, DNA protection, spermidine, magnesium threonate. What else, Sandra? Okay, let's see. So moving along, uh, tenet two is energy. And this, of course, is the mitochondria uh, in the cells. I'm sure, sure your readers know that part. Mitochondria fall apart for various reasons. The biggest reason, I'm sure everyone knows this, is, of course, nicotinamide deficiency, right? Mm -hmm. NAD does four things in your cell that are extraordinarily important. Being in the electron transport chain is one. It is a necessary cofactor for sirtuin activation, so that's two. Your cells actually take the molecule apart and use pieces of it to fix your DNA. And then lastly, it serves as a communication device between your nucleus and your mitochondria that sort of communicates how your energy levels and your cells are doing, and it sort of dictates cellular behavior. So if you are nicotinamide deficient, and anyone over the age of 40 probably is, then NAD uh, supplementation becomes extraordinarily important. Hmm. What do you think about NMN? I love NMN. There's the big war between NR and NMN. It's basically advertising at this point. I think that they both are quite effective. Yeah. Uh, you know, Chromadex screwed itself over by making NR hard to get. Then NMN came along. Now NR is a little bit easier to get. I, I, I think the point is that it's important, right? Yep. It doesn't really matter which one. And of course, because both of these are trademarks, et cetera, now people go and run and get IV infusions of the stuff or IM injections or there's nasal sprays or there's transdermal patches. And I, I think it's just all different ways depending on what anyone wants to do. I think the IV is probably a bit silly Having worked in the hospital most of my adult life, I can tell you that no one's ever showed up with an NAD deficiency stat. It can take a little bit of time to make up the deficiency orally, but it's certainly probably a safer thing to do and, and way more cost-effective if anyone's concerned about that. Yes, because these infusions are quite expensive and they are a big thing in the health and wellness biohacking circles. I see it here in a lot of my uh, friends and colleagues swear by it. I haven't done it myself yet, uh, not this infusion. Uh, so it's interesting to hear your perspective on it that, yeah, that you think I, they're. I think people think it's cool to go get an IV, yeah. which is, in my world, I put 30 IVs in a day. So honestly, it's just a pain in the ass. <laughs> people think it's cool and, and that's fine. And some people do think that there's a bit of a rush, which there, there might be, but you can inject Benadryl and get a rush too. A lot of people <laughs> do that. But in terms of actual deficiency, it's an oral supplementation is going to take, depending on how deficient you are, anywhere between 10 days to two weeks to make up that deficiency. And, and then you're fine. Depending on how fancy you want to be. Stay. Again, the point is just know you're deficient and make it up. And just pick whichever option suits your lifestyle best. 
Yeah, exactly. Oh, and some people love the patch because patches are, they respond to blood flow and heat uh, of the skin. So if you go outside and it's really warm, you get this infusion into your skin and people get a rush. Works the same thing with narcotic patches. I've had a few people pass out. I used to do some pain stuff. And so people on fentanyl patches, when their skin was warm, they get this huge sort of uh, bolus of drug and feel lightheaded and stop breathing. And that didn't seem to go so well. If you live in a really warm climate, you go in and out of air conditioning, that's patches are just not the best way to go. Oh, noted. Good to know. Yeah. Let's see. Okay. So let's mitochondria continuing. The other thing that happens in the mitochondria, of course, that there is a shortage of free radical scavengers. Mm -hmm. People love to drink antioxidants. And I think it's rather humorous because you can't actually drink enough in a drink. People love their cutesy drinks. I know, especially like in Miami and LA, they're running around with their cute little teas. You can't possibly get as much as you need drinking these cute little drinks. You just can't. But you can certainly do it uh, via supplements. And interestingly enough, some supplements are free radical scavengers under themselves, and then some activate systems whereby your body can make its own endogenous free radical scavengers, right? So you can increase your SOD levels or your catalase levels or your glutathione levels. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, people love IV glutathione, and it's good. Again, it's, it's a little over the top, but if you want it, it's fine. Also helps bleach your skin out if that's something that you're looking for. But anyway, the idea is that you need to enhance your free radical scavenging capabilities. I like uh, glutathione a lot. I like the lipospheric form of it. It's uh, bioavailable pretty quickly. And uh, there's also some, you know, products out there now that are effective and don't taste too nasty, which is also nice. Yeah. Instead of this uh, sulfuric rotten egg stuff that you used to get uh, years ago. See, in this category, I, one of my absolute favorite things in the world is astaxanthin. Okay. If I could be a molecule, what would I be? And I would be astaxanthin. It and is, it's just the coolest molecule because, so it comes from like algae. When you physiologically stress out algae, it creates this orangey pinkish goo, which de-stresses the cell that makes it. That's the whole point. And so when we consume it, it does exactly the same thing you know, decreases our intercellular stress. And it's completely harm-free. We eat it, uh, it's, it gets incorporated into uh, the membrane of our mitochondria, it sits there for about 24 hours and then you excrete it. And it is amazingly effective. Mm. I probably will talk about my tennis player daughter who's 15 and she's out in the sun all the time because it's in Miami. And she's a redhead with freckles. And if she doesn't take her astaxanthin, she gets sunburned. And if she takes it, she doesn't. It's amazing. That's interesting. I knew about that. I'm very fair skinned myself. I like to be outside. I'm careful, of course. I have noticed since I started taking liquid chlorophyll that my skin feels much better protected. I did not know that astaxanthin can do that. That is fantastic. So basically have your skin protection from the inside out instead of bothering on some stuff that then bakes in the sun and there's potential chemicals in there that are not good for you. Great. Thank you for that. That's... There's many things that do it. That's just particularly like crazy. What's one of my favorites. So mm-hmm. whenever, if anyone ever asked me where to start, the answer is astaxanthin. In fact, I think you should just put it in drinking water. It's so cool. I just love this molecule. Completely harm-free, completely natural. It just comes, up from, comes from angry algae. How great is that? <laughs> love it. So that's mitochondria. And there are a whole lot of other things that go on with mitochondria. People are obsessed with CoQ10. People are obsessed with a variety of things. Like I, as a mountain climber, when you climb, obviously high altitudes, it's, uh, you get physiologically stressed because of the hypoxia, et cetera. And what I love is there's an agent called salidrosite and you can actually change the subunits of cytochrome C that make you process oxygen better. So that's cool. Hmm. Um, Can you repeat that, please? Which, what agent is that? Salidrosite, which is in rhodiola. It also is an antidepressant as well. And it does a few other really cool things. But it actually changes the subunit of cytochrome C, and it turns you into more of a Sherpa-type metabolism. Mm-hmm. So you do way better at high altitudes. Fantastic. That's amazing. I love this stuff. I'm, I'm going to look at that as, as soon as... 
our conversation stops. I, oh, excellent. And then let's see. So then, and then there's some esoteric things in the mitochondrial department. So for example, there's something called the mitochondrial transition pore. And it's like a pop-off valve for mitochondria. So it gets a little stress and it just pops open a little bit, relieves a little bit of uh, chemical stress. And it's, generally speaking, that's a healthy thing. As mitochondria and cells get older, it stays open longer. And the longer it stays open, the longer toxins from the inside of the mitochondria leak into the rest of the cell. And that can actually just cause the cell to die. Mm. So we want to keep our mitochondrial pores not closed entirely, but keep them opening and closing at a normal rate. And what's interesting is there are a few things that can do that. That formin can do it, and actually spermidine does it as well. Let's talk a little bit more about metformin. I've heard from a lot of people that they do like taking it. I know uh, Dr. David Sinclair likes taking it regularly, especially when he doesn't exercise. There's been a lot of discussion about the pros and cons. So yeah, tell us more about that, please. So metformin actually, so it's perfect as a transition because the next thing we're gonna talk about is what I call pathways. Mm And there are innumerable pathways in your body, but I like to think of the big three as being the sirtuins, AMP kinase, and the mTOR pathway. And these start with genes and they turn into uh, proteins, like a domino effect. And then these things dictate what your body does in response to energy levels and stress levels. So the AMP kinase pathway, AMP People like know what ATP is, right? It's the energy sort of thing. It's like the coinage of the cell. You have lots of ATP, you have energy. It's adenosine triphosphate. And if you lose the phosphates, it becomes adenosine monophosphate, uh, which then activates this enzyme, a MP kinase, uh, which tells your body that you're starving and it activates all of these wonderful things to promote hibernation. And that actually helps with longevity. So anytime you turn on your AMP kinase, that helps. This is also one of the cool reasons that caloric restriction diets help with longevity, because if you tell your body you're starving, which you are because you're calorically restricted, you activate AMP kinase, it shuts down various things in your body and it helps. So that's how that works. But metformin is also an AMP kinase activator and that it helps with longevity, but it's also a partial mTOR inhibitor. And that's what the muscle issues are. People will be like, what the hell is she talking about? mTOR is a pathway and it's a pathway of youth. It helps you build things. So when you are young, you need more bone, you need more muscle, more growth, et cetera. As you get older, the idea is you want to turn off mTOR. It becomes obsolete essentially. And so people use rapamycin to turn it off in entirely. And in, in lab mat animals, it's shown that that really helps a lot with longevity. Unfortunately, it has a few drawbacks. I think the two key drawbacks are the fact that you end up becoming sarcopenic, meaning having less muscle because it just doesn't turn over and your hippocampal cells don't turn over as well. So it can uh, impede memory formation. Mm-hmm. So, so one of the problems with metformin, because it's a partial mTOR inhibitor, is it does help, but it also can hurt. So if you are an athlete, you need to time your metformin to not impede muscle growth. So the half-life is eight hours. So frequently I'll tell people, take your metformin at night, not during the day. Or if you exercise on different days, just time it so that it's gone by the time you're exercising. But metformin does a variety of things that um, changes the the bacteria in your microbiome, in your gut, selects out for skinny people bacteria versus fat people bacteria. It affects gluconeogenesis. Um, It affects a lot of things from head to toe. And in fact, in in the way I rate things, it's one of the highest rated agents. So I think it's really just an amazing drug that I think most people should be on unless there's any contraindication. I mean, on top of all the glucose lowering abilities and all that sort of thing, which is why we know about it in the first place. I'll, um, I'll love your take on this and thank you for explaining this in depth. So if somebody would be interested in taking metformin, what would be uh, the ideal way to take it? Is there a certain type of protocol? You just mentioned For example, if you're an athlete, you want to take it at nighttime so it doesn't interfere with building muscle. Should you take it basically until the end of your life every day? Should you take it 
have on and off days or weeks? How do you think it would work best for the general population? Everybody's different, of course, but if you would give general advice. So I, I, I think in general, as a diabetic medication, they usually tell you it's 500 milligrams two to three times a day. And, and I, I did that for a while. But in terms of longevity, I actually think that 500 milligrams in the morning generally, and then Babarin, which is similar to it, but not exactly, in the evening, there was a comparative study that demonstrated by, that a little bit of both instead of more of one is actually beneficial. So if you're going to do it every day, I would go with 500 metformin in the morning and 500 Babarin at night. Now, if you are an athlete, you really have to figure out what's more important to you. If you're exercising every day, you need to at least give your body, I would say five to six hours post-exercise before you're taking either of them. If you're a weekend warrior, don't take it Saturdays and Sundays. It just, it has to just fit it into different people's lifestyles, but any bit of metformin is going to be more helpful than none. Got it. And tell us a bit more about Barbarian. It's similar. It's, what's interesting is it's extremely similar in what it does. The molecules are very different, which is why it's interesting. Again, there's a whole chapter on Babarian in the book that I'm going to be putting out, which is why I was reading up all these comparative studies. So it does a lot of the same stuff. It changes your gut microbiota. Not exactly the same. It's a little bit different, but it's beneficial nonetheless. It too is a partial mTOR inhibitor. It too lowers glucose. At really high doses, it can actually harm your mitochondria though. So again, you don't want high doses of a lot of this stuff. Mm -hmm. So generally speaking, the combination is the way to go as far as I can tell. Yeah. So with regards to pathways, which is what we're starting to talk about. So that would be the third tenet, right? So that's, so that's the AMP kinase pathway. The big, the other big ones here are the sirtuins. Yes. Um, and I'm sure you have experts on saying, oh my God, no, there's 27 different pathways. And they're right, but it's really hard to talk about 27 pathways all at one time. So in my world, the sirtuins, ampicinase, and m are the ones to think about. And sirtuins are just extraordinarily important. There's 7 million sirtuins, and they just control amazing things around the body. They control the things that you assume are standard with aging that don't have to be. So they consume, or they concern like circadian rhythms, they concern where you deposit fat, they can control how much free radical scavengers your cells are making. It's just symptonots. It's just amazing. The list of what they control is unbelievable. So the most powerful thing to activate these at the moment, resveratrol and pterostilbene are the big ones. And people love to take this stuff. And I think it's fantastic. Caveats are that pterostilbene is more bioactive than regular resveratrol unless you find a more bioavailable form. And then they have a ton of those. And the other thing to know is that they are, all the sirtuins are NAD dependent. So if you're NAD deficient, you're, it's just not gonna happen. So you need to take both of them at the same time, which is why there's a, that product basis out that has pterostilbene and NR in it. Oh, I haven't heard about that yet. So the product is called basis? Basis, LCM Health puts that out. Oh. And I think it's brilliant. On the other hand, it, it's, it's one tiny aspect of all of this. Excellent. And with regards to lifestyle and sirtuins, there's certain things we can also do to activate them. Getting out of our comfort zone, whether it's cold exposure, heat exposure, intermittent fasting and such, what have you found most effective there? That's a really good question. I don't tend to focus on lifestyle all that much in terms of my research. It's just because it's really hard to measure that in cells. Like it's hard to get a cell to go exercise, get on the treadmill. It just sits there. So in terms of right, exercise clearly helps. I tend to, I shouldn't even say that I'm a wuss. I am not going to plunge my body into a cold bath, nor am I going to like sweat just mercilessly, unless I'm actually doing some really fun activity and it's worth it. So I really respect those guys that do that because it's just amazing. I could never sit in an ice bath. And I would rather pop 17 pills than sit in a cold ice bath. <laughs> I think most of us can relate to that. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a pretty damn cold showers in the Himalayas and such. And I would never do it on purpose. <laughs> 
you know? So after pathways, now we get to what I call quality control. Mm -hmm. And this is DNA and protein repair mechanisms and autophagy. And this is insanely cool because from just looking at your DNA, you have 10 to the fifth errors per cell per day. Mm. That is a lot, just yeah. a lot, right? And you've had four very specific DNA repair pathways to fix it. But of course, over the course of time, you have more DNA errors and less ability to fix it. And people are always shocked when you get cancer as you get older. And honestly, it's not shocking at all. And the good news is there are actually specific agents that increase repair mechanisms. Yes. And actually you, in your book, you include, I think it's 14 anti-aging molecular agents, right? So let's say we're talking about cancer right now. If you want to prevent that, ward that off, do, you, do people have to take them all? No, absolutely not. And you're right. There are 14 agents in book one. There'll be another 30 in book two. And certainly I don't mean for anyone to have to take all of them. All it is is just information so that people can make educated decisions. Yep. Um, but if people do have high risk of cancer in their families or they've had it before, it does suggest that either your DNA is a little screwed up or your DNA repair mechanisms are a little bit screwed up. Right. Um, and there's two things in this category that I absolutely love. One of which is called polypodium. It's sold by the name Fernblock. It, and it increases DNA repair pathways. Hmm. And you can see it's sold for the skin, essentially, right? You're out in the skin, you're burned, you take it, and your skin repairs faster. Fascinating. A similar agent is called AC11, and it comes from the Amazon, and it does the same thing. Mm -hmm. so it's either in the sun a lot or prone to cancer, as we are as we all get older. That's something to think about. And so with people, let's say you have been diagnosed with cancer, obviously you want to work closely with your MDs, with your medical caregivers, but are there certain of these molecular agents that would be good to look into together with your medical team? So the answer is yes and no. I, cancer is one of those things that's really tricky because... Most of everything I talk about is designed to make cells work better. We talk about cellular optimization. And the fear is that we're going to make cancer cells better too. So I am very hesitant to make any recommendations about helping cancer, right? Um, so that, that being said, at big centers, they are using some of these adjuvants to help. Like, for example... Curcumin is extremely helpful and they use it, I know, in a lot of cancers at MD Anderson. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. it's just a great anti-inflammatory and it helps with the immune system and that sort of thing. Along the same lines, lactoferrin is a fantastic molecule that they tend to give to people with cancer. Once you are over your cancer treatment and you're cleared, then there are tons of things that we can actually do because one of the things that chemotherapy and radiation causes a lot of senescent cells, and that's going to exude off a lot of inflammatory issues and you're just issues for life. So one of the things we can do at that point, and I'm jumping ahead to the next category is actually, no, that's very six uh, senescent cells is we want to clean those out. Yeah. So there's the quercetin models and the fisetin and, and the denacetab as well. Because if we clean out sort of senescent cells, then we're going to just do better overall post-cancer. Absolutely, yes. And I think most, uh, most people are not aware of that. And I think a lot of the conventional Western medicine also does not necessarily teach the patients how to take care of that post-treatment. I think the idea, there's a huge... You know, I, I, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus, mm -hmm. but there's a huge difference between, again, being, you know, proactive and retroactive. So cancer, you get something horrible, they treat you for the cancer, and then they go, okay, you're cured, goodbye. And that's not a very big organ-based sort of system. But if you look at the cells, they don't tend to do that. What's left behind? I've had this discussion with a lot of hemonc folks, and they just go, the patient's fine. What do you mean? The answer mm -hmm. is they're not fine. They are filled with a variety of cellular toxins. They're filled with cellular senescence. It's 
It's just, it's like, like leaving destruction in their wake. And we have the capacity to help a lot and they just don't because they're not really familiar with it. Yeah, it's not ill will. It's just the lack of knowledge. Well, autophagy. So, so back to quality management. I put autophagy because it's cellular recycling in the quality control. And I'm sure your, your listeners are familiar with autophagy. It just basically recycles cellular pieces and parts. It makes the cell more efficient. It works better. So you want to do that as much as possible with the only caveat being is the more your cell recycles in long acting cells, the more problems you're going to have with lipofusion accumulation. But in general, it's a good thing. And one of the strongest autophagy activators is spermidine. And it does it via this epigenetic process of P300, blah, 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 blah. That's not really important. But so spermidine, again, much like bubble wrapping your DNA and affecting the mitochondrial spore, pore, is very helpful because it increases autophagy. Excellent. That's going to leave multi-useful agents, let's say. Okay, let's see. The next one category is five, and this is your inflammatory and your immune system, which mm-hmm. sound different, but they're not. Because when you are young, the system attacks bacteria, viruses, all the pathogens and gets rid of them. When you get older, number one, that system does not work as well. And instead creates like this chronic inflammatory process in your body. So as you get older, you get more cancers in terms of leukemias and lymphomas from these, the cell type. You're not able to fight off infection. You can't make vaccines as effectively. And you become chronically and systemically inflamed. So these are all things that we know we need to take care of. So I want a quick interjection uh, because you mentioned it. So let's, for example, leukemia. So am I hearing that there's very, uh, that there's evidence that this may be tied to a very high inflammation um, in the body and be a result of that? I don't necessarily know if there's a tie between that, but I will tell you that high inflammatory areas do lead to cancer mm-hmm, mm-hmm. With, with, without a doubt. This is why viruses cause, you know, inflammatory stuff and cause cancer. Chronic reflux causes Barrett's esophagitis, which causes esophageal cancer. Without a doubt, chronic inflammation causes cancer. The leukemias and lymphomas are whiff different only because they're in the bone marrow. I wouldn't doubt it, but I can't say that as a fact. But I can tell you that cells that are supposed to make you able to fight off pathogens do become a source of your inflammatory processes, one of them anyway. Yes. So we really want to avoid inflammation. How do we do that according to your protocol? There are many ways to do it. I absolutely love metacurcumin. Mm-hmm. Um, I drink it with my breakfast. This stuff's amazing. And people, they love turmeric. And I think that's great. They always say, I eat it for dinner. The answer is you couldn't possibly eat enough. Right. And so let's metacurcumin. Is this a particular right. I'm, get, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. So turmeric is where it comes from. Curcumin is one to 5% within the turmeric, right? And the problem with regular curcumin is that the bioavailability is terrible. So if you eat it, it lasts in your body for about an hour max. So there's been this ever increasing war of manufacturing to figure out how best to get curcumin in your body and to keep it there. There are probably at least six, seven, eight, nine. Every time I look, there's more products, but my favorite one is called metacurcumin and it's packaged in what they call a nanomycel. And the bioavailability is through the roof. And, and I know this because if I take more than three, I turn yellow. <laughs> For real. Oh, really? Because, you know, I'm pretty pale. You could tell. I'm like, when I'm like, ooh, I've overdone it now. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I beat myself to a pulp as a rock climber. And if I'm not on my metacurcumin, you could feel it. Yeah. On it, it, the inflammation really goes away. And of course, every cell and lab rat study have demonstrated a decrease in the interleukins, the inflammatory factors, and all this sort of thing. Now, granted, there are a zillion of them out there. Many of them are spectacular. It's just my personal favorite. I'll look into that as well. I love recommendations like these. This is fantastic. Let's see. All right. So the sixth category is what I call individual cell requirements. And this is because despite the fact that I pretend that all cells are the same, they're clearly not. 
So in this category, it's the recognition that a stem cell we want to take care of, a senescent cell we want to get rid of. A red cell has different requirements than, say, a kidney cell or a lung cell or a brain cell. So one of the, the, the interesting things in this category, and it's not necessarily for longevity, but just for general health, is most of these cells over the course of time suffer from what I call micronutrient deficiency. Mm -hmm. so I tell everyone that asks that they should be on some sort of prenatal vitamin. Yeah. Yep. Not the full dose, but a prenatal vitamin tends to be the most well-rounded vitamin. And you turn over so many cells in your body every day that you might as well be making a baby every day. And it's, I don't know if you've ever had children, but when you're on prenatals, your hair grows like crazy and your fingernails grow like crazy. It's clearly good for you. Yeah. And then as you're not pregnant anymore, everyone stops and then everything stops and you think, why did I stop? And the answer is you don't have to stop. So it freaks out the family here, but both of my teenage girls are on prenatals and, and uh, they use, which ones do you like products? Oh, I don't really know. They like the ones that are gummies and they're sweet. I don't know. It, yeah. It's just the point is you need a, a good solid mix of the full range of nutrients. They're, they're ones that taste absolutely horrible and you're not going to eat them because they taste absolutely horrible. And then the ones probably have too much sugar, but my kids are teenagers. So what difference does it make? I, I don't have a specific choice in that category. We talked briefly about senescent cells. We need to get rid of those. Stem cells require just so much TLC. And then the last category is waste management. And I, I love this category because it's just so cool. We all know that glucose is bad for us. And the question is why? It creates glycation. And glycation is something that we really need to, to be aware of. Glucose, of course, bonds with uh, proteins, DNAs and lipids, makes AGEs or advanced glycation end products. And these are just horrible for us. They destroy our collagen, our entire inner bodies get glycated, proteins don't work and everything just falls apart. So I am personally obsessed um, with trying to deglycate everything within myself. So Sandra, this is really fantastic. Lots of hands-on tips, lots of stuff that I personally haven't even heard about or been exposed to. And I usually pride myself to be at least on the surface in the know. I'm really excited to look further into some of these things that you mentioned. How do we have to imagine your day? What is your personal protocol? Do you follow everything in, in your own protocol? Or do you have a, a tailored certain things specifically to you? Like, how do you start your day? What happens? You, you joked before, I'd rather take 70 some pills than take an ice bath. But so what do you actually do personally? So I get up at 520 every morning and <laughs> this is going to sound, I'm going to sound like this crazy human. I take my first 10 agents after I get out of the shower, I go back and then I slather my body in my, what I call swamp juice. Based on the seven reasons that you age, I create my own skin products and swamp juice is this fabulous concoction of it's concentrated aloe, hyaluronic acid, scintilla, some polypeptides, some white tea oil, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, slather myself while it's drying. I do go take five more agents because why not? And then I go to work and somewhere around noon, I take a variety of prescription things. I take like a diabetic medication. I'm not diabetic. I take my high blood pressure medicine, but I'm not I don't have anything, but I take all of these goofy things because why not? A few more hours pass and then I down 20 more agents. I come home at some point, I go to the gym. I'm an avid exerciser, swim, lift weights, and obviously rock climb. And then before I go to bed, I sit in front of my red light and then I'm good. Excellent. Love red light too. And you actually pretty much covered it. There's a question I ask every guest with regards to their personal practices whatever has helped them elevate their lives in the areas of the mind, the body, the brain, or, or spiritually, is there anything else that you really love that has enhanced your own life and that you think would be nice for some other people to also look into? I, I, I don't know. It just depends what people are into. I think spending a lot of time outdoors is helpful for me. I think it cleanses your mind. I, I, I'm an avid lap swimmer. I put on some tunes and disappear into just 
nothingness, which I think is just so cleansing. But everyone has a different way of cleansing their mind from reality. I think exercise is just a gift that you give to yourself. Some people find it torturous. I just, I can't live my day without it. I don't know. And then I think that the other key is to just forget that you do all of these things because otherwise it's just, it's obsessive. It's just yeah. a part of what you are and a part of what you do. And it, it's not who you are. It's the tool that allows you to do other things. I don't think about swallowing all this stuff. I just do, but it, it allows me, you know, I'm now I'm 53. I climb giant mountains. I'm a 5'11 rock climber. I couldn't do that if I didn't do all of this stuff. So it's just a tool. Yeah, I love the way you look at this. I agree wholeheartedly. And uh, with regards to rock climbing specifically, I find that just uh, such a fascinating passion. How did you actually get into that? Good question. I did it once or twice in grad school. Didn't think too much of it. Of course, I moved to Miami, which there aren't that many rocks down here, but there was a gym near the hospital. I thought well, that's a goofy thing to start trying. And then just got into that vibe and you meet people and it's really rock climbers are the nicest people in the world. No mm-hmm. one cares who you are, what you do. It's, it's all about positivity. Everyone mm-hmm. encourages other people because it's, it's not really competitive. It's you're just it's what can you do yourself? Can I make it to the top? Can I try a different route? This, that, and the other. And then once you're good at climbing indoors, you go outside and it, it is just breathtaking. There is nothing more amazing than hanging off of a cliff that you just climbed up. It's hard on your body. It really beats you up, but it is exhilarating. Yeah. I, I have friends who are really into that and I haven't quite yet mustered the courage to go for it, but it's something that I, yeah, I would really like to at least give it a try. It's, it's daunting if you've never tried it. I look at people who do it, and I'm just like, wow, that's amazing. The mix of your, the body and your brain, you have to be in the moment so much. So it's, yeah, I love the idea of it. It's, I like to think of it, it's vertical yoga, right? Oh. It's, it's, it takes a lot of body knowledge. It takes a lot of understanding of what you can do, how far you can reach, how strong you are. So you have to be pretty strong. And obviously this is audio, but I'm pretty muscular, but it's, I don't go to the gym and pump iron all that frequently. It's just, it's a side product of what I do. I don't think about it. It just happens. Mm-hmm. Um, the only other problem, however, is then when you go to a cocktail party and you put on a cute dress my arms bulge a little bit too much and my fingernails are never painted because <laughs> every time I try they just get you know beat up and scratched and it looks ridiculous everything has its price so I probably look better on a wall than I do at a cocktail party I think that's an easy price to pay plus I personally think strong is beautiful and especially on a woman. That's a very cool thing and something to aspire to. Going off on a tangent here, just out of personal curiosity, and since you work in the field of anesthesia, what are your thoughts on ketamine and ketamine therapy now that's used for whether it's chronic pain or treatment-resistant depression, PTSD, anxiety, and such? It's fabulous. I spent a decade doing pediatric pain and it's a fantastic treatment for intractable neuropathic pain. Mm-hmm. It really is amazing. I would bring kids in and fuse it for a couple hours and it just resets the neurologic system. And it's been truly a lifesaver for massive depression. A lot of people like to abuse it on the street, but people will abuse absolutely everything on the street, but as a therapeutic modality for nerve issues, it's fantastic. Agreed, yeah. I personally have done the infusions uh, for anxiety, which has been something that I've been managing all my life. The symptoms become fairly adept at that. I I just found it... It, it was amazing to see that it didn't only help with the symptoms, but it actually helped resolve some of the root causes. So that's my personal journey with it. And I've just heard some really great stories and witnessed some myself. 
my husband actually got a treatment earlier this year and it was so effective for him that he actually opened a, a ketamine clinic. And so we have a ketamine clinic in Santa Monica in Los Angeles. And it's been yeah, quite wonderful to see how people's lives are transformed. Interesting. Mm. That, it's, it's fantastic to hear. I have fallen out of doing that just because my career took me in a different direction. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I, I think it's a phenomenal thing to do. And it really has helped a ton of people. Yeah. Um, I would like to think that people have anxiety and depression and all of that. A lot of it is just cells in the brain that are not optimized. Mm-hmm. And I like to think that if people were on a longevity program, which is truly just a cellular optimization program, that perhaps a lot of that can go away. That's a really interesting approach to it. I've never thought about it in that way. Fantastic. Because there's a whole set of these things. And I try to, in the, the books, differentiate between things that cross the blood brain barrier and things that do not. Yes. So for example, a lot of depression is rooted in neural inflammation. So if mm. you can decrease neural inflammation, which you can do, and you can also change ratios of neurotransmitters and all of that sort of thing. And if you normalize that, a lot of symptoms can get significantly better, at least per studies. And so with regards to decreasing neural inflammation on top of your head, what would be some of the compounds or supplements that can cross the blood brain barrier that you would think would be helpful? So one of my favorites in this category is called andrographolide. The caveat is that it tastes terrible because it's a triterpene. When people ask me what to do about the brain, I say andrographolide, magnesium threonate, and spermidine, like just three amazing ways to help the brain. And interestingly, my daughter has some anxiety issues and she's been taking the salidrocide and that seems to be helping significantly as well. So Mm -hmm. clearly that crosses the blood brain barrier. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Yeah. I think a lot of people are not available of these tools and go through such suffering uh, often for many years where there are potentially simple fixes or multiple approaches, whether it's these supplements together with certain talk therapy or whatnot. And we live in a really great time where we have all this knowledge and all these different modalities available to us, I think. And I hope that we'll see a great reduction of human suffering whether it's physical or, and or mental, plus it's tied together. Part of actually the problem of calling what I do longevity medicine is that it's underrates the ability of getting rid of disease and making mm-hmm. people better. Because as soon as you start talking about longevity, people think, oh my God, she's a crackpot. And I'm trying to sell snake oil or something. And the reality is that all I'm trying to do is maximize cellular function. And depending on what cell or what organ that cell happens to be in, you make that organ better. If you can make all of your organs better, it translates into true longevity, but it can also just alleviate suffering. If you can make your kidneys work better, maybe you don't have to go on dialysis. You make your heart work better. Maybe you're not going to go into congestive heart failure. You make your brain work better. Maybe you won't be depressed or have anxiety or have seizures, et cetera. So all of this is truly just hardcore science translated into helping people be better. I love that. And I think your mission, you truly are helping people reach their full human potential. And that is something that is really also a big passion of mine to truly be able to fulfill our purpose, our dreams and live life passionately and free from the worries that diseases uh, can cause or having a end of your life in front of your eyes. So being able to extend the lifespan and the health span is just a beautiful thing. And um, very grateful for all the work you do there, Sandra, for people who want to learn more about you and maybe reach out to you. Where can they do so? Uh, I am so easy to find. It's painful. So everything I do falls under the label Kaufman Protocol. Actually, that's not completely true. Uh, The website is kaufmanprotocol.com. On Instagram, it is kaufmananti-aging. 
and there is an email address on the website and i forget what i want to say it's kaufman aai at gmail i think but it's it's on the website and i will tell people that i do not have a staff other than two teenage children that sometimes help me it is just me myself and i usually get inundated by emails and i answer every email myself personally i pour a lot of time into it and if I don't get to anyone's email immediately, I, I absolutely apologize, but I do get to all of them with time. So people need to be patient. Some people be like, it's been two days. You haven't answered me. I can't be that fast, uh, but I, I do. And I do answer everyone's questions and I take them very seriously. That's fantastic. Sandra, you are, you have not only been a most inspiring and gracious guest with your time, I, I find it just so lovely and wonderful that you uh, actually personally get back to people and their questions. That's really super. Thank you for everything you do. And thank you so much for coming on the Superhumanized podcast today. Oh, it's been my absolute pleasure. I, I can't thank you enough for being the great communicator. Thank you, Sandra. Have a great rest of your day. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution.